Thanks so much for having me, Epiphany Gloucester. How you doing? All right, all right. It's good. It's good to be here. I am so grateful for your pastor, Pastor Joe Marlin. He is a dear friend and a dear brother. Yeah, can we give the Lord a hand for him? I always tell him that he's doing the real ministry here in Gloucester as he is seeking to build bridges for the glory of God and for the good of his neighbors. And I'm so godly proud of him and the things that he and his lovely wife have been doing and their children. And I, I am honored to, to preach in his pulpit today to the glory of Jesus. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I, it's all right. It'll pop up on the screen. Don't even, don't even worry. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. It's going to pop up. Don't you even worry about it. I'm in the book of Song of Songs, um, also known as Song of Solomon. Um, I'll be starting from the first chapter, verses 5 through 11. And it just says, it's only right, uh, Song of Songs, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through 11. It simply says, daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them run at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? This is how he answers. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of your flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklaces. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. Why don't you all pray with me? Father, it is by grace that we come again in the mighty name of Jesus, just saying thank you. To thank you for the abundance of your grace that you have lavished on us because of your great love for us. Lord, I pray that you will stand up in me, that you will sit me down at this moment, um, that Ernest Grant will plead the fifth, and that you will stand up and testify on behalf of your son. Lord, we need you. We need to hear a word from you, Lord. I know there are some of us that are in here hurting, and we're desperate for your encouragement. Would you come visit us during this moment? We ask you this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs is probably one of the most under-read books in the Bible. I would put it right there with Deuteronomy, Leviticus. I wasn't going to preach a sermon from Leviticus today. Uh, but, but Song of Solomon is a really wonderful book. It's actually a love song. So it's a poem to be sung with musical accompaniment. Um, it's also a song that they would have played in the club. Funny enough, the first century rabbis uh, would have listened to this song played um, in the cabarets, and they would have been upset that it was even being played and danced to. Uh, so this is a wonderful book. It's not a law book. It is not a book that is, um, uh, it's not a gospel, but rather it's poetry. So we interpret it as such. And in this book, we have a story of a young Shulamite or Jewish woman who fell in love with another, with a man, and they're just celebrating their almost erotic love right here in the book of Song of Solomon. It's a beautiful picture. A few days ago, uh, my wife and I were preparing to put our kids to bed. Um, and you know, like anybody, that having a bedtime routine is immensely important. Uh, Sometimes it works out well. Other times it doesn't go well at all. You just have to continue to try your best sometime. 
Well, anyway, my, my daughter, I mean, my son was getting picked up out of the tub by my mom, by my wife. Um, she grabbed him and tried to secure him in the towel. And um, after that time, she stumbled over my feet. He, she was okay. Like, everything was fine. It was a close call. The Lord was gracious. Uh, but in the Grant household, we're kind of lighthearted. So after she stumbled a little bit, and I know this is going to sound bad, but I kind of laughed a little bit. Like, it was, it was kind of funny. Not, not because my son was about to fall or my wife was about to hurt herself, but because I've never quite seen my son hold on to his mother like that. It was, it was, it was really fun. It was really funny. Uh, he, in that moment, though he's only one, if he can articulate his words, he would say that he was probably fearful. He would probably argue that he was nervous or he would say that he was vulnerable. Uh, but if he could really uh, express his thought, number one thing he would say that he felt was insecure. And church, as we reach our passage this afternoon in the book of Song of Songs, I can't help but to think that there are many of you in here today that often feel the way my son felt in that moment, and that's insecure. Many of us in here struggle with a chronic sense of inferiority. We just feel like we're not good enough. We don't have the education. We don't have the pedigree. Uh, we're struggling from day to day, and many of us, depending on our temperament, we even refuse compliments. Instead of taking compliments from others, we just tend to point out our flaws on a continual basis. Um, there's a saying in sports that says that you have to leave everything on the field. But insecure people don't often leave everything on the field because they're afraid that their best simply won't be good enough. And let's be clear, not all insecurity is bad insecurity. Um, I used to breed dogs for a while, and if you told me your pooch was barking at me and that he doesn't bite, but his tail is not wagging and he looks angry, uh, I'm going to be nervous about that and insecure, right? But in our, in our vernacular, the word insecurity has morphed. It's no longer circumstantially or situationally induced fear, but rather it's a recurring state of mind, a recurring state of being. So we would say that a person is being insecure. We, would, we might say such and such is an insecure person. What we mean is that they lack self-confidence. It means that they have a, a powerful fear of being uh, disapproved or they're afraid of rejection. The truth is, is that many of us in here, we feel insecure. We feel like we simply don't do things well. We feel like we're not good enough. And I think if that's you today, that this passage is tailored to teach us how to identify some root causes of this problem and then fight and combat this problem from a biblical standpoint. Here we have this young lady. In verses 2 through 4, she is filled with this erotic sense of love. She starts off in verse 2, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth because his love is better than wine. And keep in mind that this young lady is probably 16 or 17 years old. How would she know so much about alcohol? And how would she know about the intoxicating nature of sex? Uh, I, I would solicit to you that she probably learned from her religious community. She didn't have an Instagram account. There probably was no sexual revolution here. But what she did know was that sex was a good thing if it's done in the confines in which God allows it. So she begins really abruptly in verses 2 through 4, but once she reaches chapter, verses 5 and 6, um, she begins to express some self-doubts and some insecurities. Initially, she's very happy about her relationship. 
Uh, it's not mere infatuation, but rather it's a healthy, life-giving relationship. And she finds strength in the community of her family, or strength in the council of her community. But here in this passage, she begins to feel nervous and insecure. And now she's giving, she's giving voice to her insecurities and her self-doubts. Well, the question is this. What makes this young girl so insecure? How does a young lady, 16, 17 years old, how does she get insecure like this? The first answer for you is this. She's self-conscious about her physical appearance. I don't know about you, but I've never been the best standardized test taker. Um, While, you know, I'm glad I didn't have to take a few of those in seminary, but um, while my classmates were all graduating magna cum laude and Summa cum laude, I was graduating thank you laude. I was just happy to, happy to make it out. And I really stunk up this test called the SAT. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I really stunk that up. I don't know how I made it through that at all. Uh, perhaps I got admitted into college and they didn't look at the scores. Uh, but, but the SAT was difficult because when I didn't do that well the first time, it really hurt my feelings. If you've ever failed a test, you know that it really hurts your feelings. It makes you feel like you're not good enough. In other words, you feel like you don't meet the set standard. And that's how this young lady felt in this passage. There was a conventional beauty standard that she just did not meet because of her dark skin and because of her unkept appearance. Verse 5, she says this. She says, I am dark. Now, when she says that she's dark, it's not a racial feature but rather it's a social feature. Her skin, her dark skin was not the byproduct of her ethnicity. She was forced to work outside um, in the vineyard and the harsh glare of the sun kissed her skin and darkened it. So she realized that her skin color had some natural or was deemed not so beautiful by society. She was insecure because she didn't feel like she measured up to the daughters of Jerusalem. The daughters of Jerusalem had nice houses. The daughters of Jerusalem had a lot of education. The daughters of Jerusalem rode nice cars, and they were extremely intelligent. But here, she's realizing that she can't measure up to them in any significant way. In the ancient culture, poor people worked in the field, while the rich stayed indoors to keep their skin pale. So she knew that her skin color had some very, very profound social implications. And to make matters even worse, she was being discriminated upon by people that were in her same race, culture, and ethnicity. Her skin complexion meant that she was poor. Her skin complexion meant that she had little access to education. Her skin color meant that she was ostracized from social circles and that she would be stereotyped. This is what we would call racial stratification or colorism. In other words, can I tell you that a lot of this goes on in many of our urban communities and which and which deeper or which lighter shades of color are preferred over darker ones. And oftentimes the, the, the standard of beauty are the only are the ones that are European in nature. And it happens every day. Oftentimes in our communities, uh, we pit light-skinned folks against dark-skinned folks, or we look down on those who don't have good hair. And society only really recognizes certain attributes, specifically of African Americans, that are beautiful in nature. 
So we say that an African-American woman that has wide hips and, th and thick thighs and a, and a big gluteus maximus, she would be beautiful, but there's other qualities about her that don't quite match that standard of beauty. In other words, the question is, is this young lady knew that there was a negative social meaning, a negative social meaning that was attached to her skin color. And she undoubtedly felt insecure. She felt less than because she was not the type of, she didn't have the skin color that, was, that, would, that would enable her to experience privilege. Not only did she not have the right skin color, but here's another thing that she had. She was job shamed. She was job shamed. Jeffrey Owens, who played Sandra Huxtable's husband in the TV hit The Cosby Show in the late 80s and early 90s, um, was working in Trader Joe's because he was trying to supply or take care of his family. Eventually, somebody found out about it on social media, took a picture of him, of, uh, took a picture of him, and he was devastated because of all the criticism that he received for trying to feed his family. Well, can I tell you, church, that this young lady would have felt the same way. The text says that she works in a, she works in a vineyard, and working in a vineyard meant that you were less than. It meant that you were a peasant. It meant that you weren't good enough. It meant that you were a part of the lower working class. She would have to dig up ditches and clear out stones and plant vines and pick grapes. And she had to do all of that while she was running away thieves and fighting wild animals. She was considered a peasant. She wasn't considered beautiful at all. But on top of that, she had another problem. She was being job shamed. She, wasn't the, she didn't have the standard of beauty, but on top of that, she was also being body shamed. Verse 6 says this. It says that she hasn't taken care of her own vineyard. A vineyard is a metaphor for the female body, and she could be referring to what the heavy work did to her physique. So meanwhile, the daughters of Jerusalem were, were voluptuous. They were light-skinned. And she was lean and she was muscular and she was tanned. And she knew that and she knew that she was experiencing some negative social meaning simply because of her physique. I feel sorry for this young girl because she did not like the way she looked. She didn't like her body. And church, can I tell you that there are some people in here that feel exactly the way that this young girl feels in this passage? You are filled with insecurity and you have a low self-image because you don't like the way your body looks. Um, when you walk past the mirror in the morning, you get upset because you don't have the perfect body. It's not as flawless as you would want. It's not how it quote unquote should be. And when you're honest, you get upset with God because you don't match the conventional beauty standards of the day. You don't like your facial features. You don't like your thin lips. You don't like that your hair isn't long enough. You don't like that you have put on weight and you've tried every diet and it hasn't seemed to be working. You don't like your quirks. You don't like your idiosyncrasies. Many of us don't like our, char uh, don't like our, our characteristics. And the truth is, is that many of us struggle with a chronic sense of inferiority. Go ahead and preach, Pastor Ernest. Y'all can go ahead and talk back to me because I know I'm in the building here. So, so some of us are struggling because we don't like our bodies and we view it as more, as a, more of a curse than a blessing from the Lord Jesus. And fellas, we do the same thing. 
We go to the gym. We compare ourselves to other people in the gym. We, uh, we, we do all type of pre-workout. We spend money on mass-gaining supplements. And here's the truth. Many of us dudes are so ashamed of our bodies that we would rather die than take our shirts off at the pool. I'll wait. That's the truth. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. We have a deep-seated insecurity as men. To ourselves, we want to be confident. To an opposite sex, we want to be sexy. To our peers, we want to be intimidating. And to our fathers, we simply want approval. Because the truth is, is that many of us as men are still emotionally immature little boys that want an encouraging pat on the back. And we'll use women as sexual conquests in order to feel good about ourselves, but it will never do anything to that hole in our soul that only Jesus can fill. A few weeks ago, to lighten the mood, um, I went shopping with my little daughter. She's three years old. I couldn't afford to go to Whole Foods like my hipster cousins, uh, so I opted for the next best thing. We went to the dollar store. It was a great thing, right? Went to the dollar store. So my daughter, I placed her in the cart, and we were going to check out. And then as we were checking out, she caught a glimpse of a shirtless Michael B. Jordan from the Black Panther movie. And she pointed over at him. She said, Daddy, look. And I looked. I thought I was looking for Peppa Pig. I said, are we looking at Peppa Pig or something, baby? She said, no, look. She said, ooh, Daddy, look, body, body. She was pointing at Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> so I, you know what I did. I went off on her. I said, Amela, the only body that you need to be worrying about is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all you need to be worried about, child. They almost called the cops on me. It was a beautiful thing. But here's what I realized. That the same way that she looked at Michael with admiration is the same way that we often want to be looked at with admiration as dudes. We want people to look at us and desire us. But here's the thing, and you got to remind yourself of this on a continual basis. You have to remind yourself that God's love for you is not predicated on how your body looks. That he values you because of who you are in Christ Jesus. He's made you with a thinking mind. He's given you a feeling heart. And he's given you a beauty because of his son that supersedes all of your external features. Let me just tell you that when the culture inundates you with lies, sometimes you just have to stand flat-footed and preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself of the truth. You've got to remind yourself that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've got to remind yourself that you're really whole in Christ Jesus. You've got to remind yourself that the goal of your body is not to attract others, but an instrument to worship God. A lot of times... Our low self-image is the inability to see ourselves as God sees us. But maybe your insecurity is an invitation. When, when you feel insecure, maybe it's God inviting you to escape the false beliefs that you have about yourself and to find peace and refuge in what he has to say about you. Let me tell you, church, that's why you have to read the scriptures. Because the scriptures are like the braces of God. 
They help you put them on. You don't notice a difference at first, but slowly but surely, it starts to close up your gap. Slowly but surely, it pulls back your underbite. Slowly but surely, you begin to look the way you desire. That, that's what he's saying. When you are reading the word of God, when you're spending time in it, what God does is he corrects your eyesight so that you will see yourself the way that he sees you. Here's the thing. Even if you look the way you want, you would still be unhappy with it. Even if you had the physique and the facial features and you got breast augmentation and butt augmentation or dudes, if you were a little bit taller, you had some abs, you would still be upset with the way you look. You would still find a flaw in it. But here's the thing. The source of our insecurities often isn't our self-image, but it's because of our self-preoccupying, uh, preoccupation, there it is. We are too preoccupied with ourselves. In the words of Tim Keller, we don't need to think more of ourselves. We don't need to think less of ourselves. We need to think of ourselves less. We are too concerned with us, too concerned with our needs, too concerned with our, dire, our, our, our desires. My dad would say, we always have the gimmies, the I needs, and the I wants. But maybe your insecurity is serving another purpose. Maybe your insecurities is a cease and desist letter from God so that you will stop idolizing your appearance and start worshiping his awesomeness. Maybe he's saying, turn your attention off of your gaze and look to me who is the holy one and able to deliver you. Rather than being so concerned with self-care and self-promotion, he's saying, when are we as his church going to be more invested in our soul care? where we would spend time taking care of who we are in Christ Jesus. Verses 2 through 4 were filled with erotic love. Verses 5 through 6 are, are expressions of insecurity and uncertainty. But verses 7 and 8, the predictable thing happens. This young girl brings her insecurities right into her relationship. She begins with a fearful, almost urgent tone, and she just says in verse 7, where do you where do, you, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do they rest at noon? What she's saying here in this passage is she's turning her attention from the daughters of Jerusalem that have created insecurities, and now she's turning her attention back to her beloved betrothed fiancé. And she's saying, let me ask you this, sir. Who are your coworkers? That's what she's saying. Who are your friends? Are you going to let me meet them? What she's saying is, I want to be more involved in your life. And then she turns around in verse 7 and she ups the ante. She says, why should I be like one of the ones who veils themselves beside the flocks of your companions? The veiled ones are prostitutes. Men would go through any, any extent they could to keep their relationship with a prostitute silent or private. And what she's saying is, are you trying to keep this relationship private? She's saying, am I some side chick that you just want to be with when you want to be with and don't want to claim me? She's saying, do you claim me? Do you want me to have, do you, do you know, do you want people to know that we're in a relationship or are you trying to ostracize me like my brothers? That's what she's saying. She's saying, you know my broken life. You know that I've got low self-esteem. 
You know that I come from a broken single parent household. You know that I'm poor. You know that I've got a low, a low paying job. Do you love me or are you as ashamed of me as I am of myself? Poor young girl. Her anxiety is through the roof. Her apprehension is extremely high. And his responses in these next few verses can either make or break the relationship. But like Michael Jordan in the fourth quarter, with the tie game on the line, he rises to the occasion. And in the next four verses, he, he not only calms her anxiety, but he affirms her worth, he encourages her soul, and he displays at least three qualities that are important characteristics for a godly man to have. Can I tell you a few of them? Number one, a godly man will be sensitive to your insecurities. That's number one. A godly man will be sensitive to your insecurity. Look at the first words out of his mouth in verse 8. He says, if you do not know, most beautiful of women. We can just stop there. She's full of anxiety. She's got all of these fears. But he starts out with this playful tone, and he affirms her. It's almost like the tone of this passage is almost like he's being flirtatious. He calms her anxieties by affirming her worth and not escalating the situation by introducing his own insecurities. Rather than him lifting up his voice and talking over to her, he spent some time listening to her. And then with a playful tone, he takes his tone and just puts out all of her anxieties. It's a beautiful thing. And then he says this. He says, follow the tracks of your flock and pasture your goats near the shepherd. You know what he's doing here? He's saying, I want you to be a part of my life. He's saying, I'm a shepherd. I have sheep. I'm inviting you to bring your goats to where my sheep are. He's saying this. He's saying, I am being transparent. I don't have anything to hide. In other words, the, the modern equivalent would be someone saying that I don't take my phone in the bathroom with me. I allow you to have the passcode to my phone. Uh, I'm not secretive. You can have my email account address and password. You can, you, when, when someone sends a text message, I might ask you to go over and read it to me and respond or not. He's saying that I don't have anything to hide. And ladies, let me just tell you, if a man has something to hide from you, then you need to really examine that relationship of whether it's something that you need to be involved with or not because you can't do a lot to upgrade character. Character is something that's upgraded in community through repentance over a course of time, not something that you can do simply in a dating relationship. So that's number one, is that he, I forgot the point, there, a godly man will be sensitive to your insecurities. Here's the next thing. A godly man will steward his influence over you. A godly man will be a good steward of his influence over you. Uh, she loved this man. She loved the ground that he walked on. She loved his character. She loved his fragrance. She, she, and, and his opinion of her really mattered. He wielded a tremendous amount of influence in her life. And he could have used his words to build her up. Or he could have used his words in order to break her down and to feed into her insecurities. And this man chose wisely. He wielded his influence carefully. Because let me tell you something. Nothing will shape your view of yourself quite like this, your significant other. 
If your significant other says that you are beautiful and that you are intelligent and that you are wise, it will put you on cloud nine. But if they mock and revile you and are verbally abusive, it will lead a void in your soul that no amount of success can fill. This man realized that her soul was barren. It was parched. And he used his, his words as water to nurture her insecure soul. A godly man will use his influence to build you rather than break you. Can I tell you the last one? The last one is this. A godly man will see something in you that you don't see in yourself, and then he will say what he sees. Let me say that again. A godly man will see something in you that you don't see in yourself, and then he will say what he sees. Verse 9 and 10, he leaves no ambiguity about how he feels. He says that, baby, you're as beautiful as a horse. <laughs> That's hilarious. He said, you're beautiful as a horse. Well, fellas, you probably don't want to talk to your ladies like this. You probably don't want to say, baby, you trot like a Clydesdale. You probably don't want to, you probably don't want to do that. Uh, you probably don't want to say, baby, your hair is beautiful as a Mustang. Now, you probably... Don't want to do that. You want to come up with some contextually relevant compliments. You want to be a creative complimenter, but these are probably not how you want to do it. But what he was saying was he realized that she worked in the field. He was distinctive, if you will, and he had probably seen Pharaoh's horse before. And when Pharaoh's horse was ready for a parade, it would have jewelry on and it would be distinctive and it would be beautiful, and it would, it would stand out from the others. And what he's saying to her is that, listen, I know you don't see it in yourself because of your darkened skin. I know you don't see it in yourself because of your unkept appearance. I know you don't see it in yourself because of your, your muscular physique. But even though you don't meet the cultural standards of today, you meet my beauty standard. He saw something in her that she didn't see in herself. And then he used his affirming words by telling her what he saw in her that she was blind to. It's a beautiful thing. The church, here's the thing. Deep down, all of us are just like this woman. We want someone to love us in spite of us. We want someone to affirm us. We want someone to love us and, and be considerate of our feelings. And can I tell you this? That this picture between this man and this woman is just a small illustration of how much Christ loves his church and how much he loves his bride. Jesus saw that his bride's mascara was runny from sin. He saw that iniquity had caused their eyeshadow to crease. He saw that the foundation was, was cakey from transgression. He saw that their soul was black with lawlessness, but on the cross of Calvary, that faithful day, he took all of our sins from the past, present, and the future. He laid them upon himself, and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's done. No longer do you have to seek the approval of the culture. No longer do you have to seek the approval of others. No longer is beauty your only worth. I want you to know that I died on the cross for you. I resurrected again on the third day, and I did it so that you and I could match God's beauty standard. We match Christ's beauty standard, God's beauty standard, because of what his son accomplished on the cross of Calvary. So I just want to encourage you today that I know that some of us feel insecure. I know some of us feel less than. 
I, f- I know some of us feel like we're just not good enough. But because of what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary, you all can feel and we can feel as a community secure in our insecurities. Father, it is by grace that we come again just saying thank you. Thanking you for this wonderful time. Lord, I just thank you so much for this congregation that had the opportunity to stand before today and preach the gospel. Lord, I thank you that you're forming them as disciples. Thank you that you're building them and encouraging their souls. Lord, that that they're growing in their stature, God. And we just pray a special blessing over those who are struggling with insecurities today. Those who feel like they're not good enough, where society has deemed them um, unfit or, or not good. Lord, I pray a special blessing that you, they would realize who they are in you. Lord, they are greater than their bodies. That you are greater than their past mistakes. Lord, in the future that you have for them is better than the past that they came from. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will encourage our souls that you would help us to not be so preoccupied with our wishes, that our desires, and that we would turn our attention and our gaze from our issues and we would turn them to the crucified Savior. So, Lord, we love you today. We recognize that we are frail human beings, but we recognize that you are an infinite God that loves us more than we can ask or think. So, Father, we love you today. We honor you. We pray that you will continue to bless Epiphany Gloucester and their great pastor, Pastor Joe Marlin. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.